Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is John Rahm, the defending U.S. Open champion and one of the best golfers in the world. There's so much to admire about John Rahm. He's obviously super talented, absolutely the real deal as a person, and an extraordinary competitor. But I think you'll be surprised to learn one of his most distinguishing characteristics is his love for the history of the game. Not only does it help him appreciate those who come before him, but he uses what he's learned to give him a competitive edge and help him in the heat of battle. Now, knowing your history can be your advantage too, because here's the thing, the best leaders I know use history to learn from and inspire them about what's possible. You're going to love this episode, so let's tee it off. Here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, John Rowe. You're the defending U.S. Open champion. What's that feel like? You know, you're going into this tournament as a defender. All eyes will be on you. What's it feel like? Usually when you defend in a tournament, obviously you want to repeat it, right? And I feel like a major is a little bit different in the sense, of course, you want to win it. But there's a sense of empowerment when you're the defending champion of a major, right? Because, I mean, still got the trophy in the mantle. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, they have to come and take it from me. <laughs> That's a good attitude. What'd you have to fight through and learn to win your first major, John? You know, that's a, a bit of a category you could put on in golf very quickly. If you're somebody who's excelled in the amateur levels and then you come out on tour, and if you're like me, you start playing good right away, you get put in the category of best to never win a major very quickly. Very, very, very quickly. When, you know, I mean, I took what, five years as a pro to win. I understand Tiger did it right away. I understand Jordan Spieth did it very fast. But there's many cases of great players who took a little bit longer, right? It's not the easiest thing to do. Uh, I know Jack won early as well. But, you know, there's many other great players that's taken a while. And it didn't really, I mean, obviously, you like it to be as fast as possible. But it took me a little bit to kind of learn how to control that willingness and wanting to win, right? Because every time we show up to a major, you want to win so bad and you want to get it done so so badly, right? You get four chances a year that it's very easy to put a little bit too much stress in the week, right? It's very easy to try to do too much and change your your usual routine. And it took me a little bit to to understand that. And I think the U.S. Open, the fact that uh, I was in bed the week before completely and didn't get to stress myself out, basically. And I got to the tournament with, I guess, the perfect mindset, uh, relaxed zero expectations. And I was out there to just try my best. And, you know, it came out. You know, a lot of us as leaders, we have similar kinds of expectations, the high expectations we put on ourselves, the high expectations that people have for us. What advice can you give to others on how to really handle that external and and internal pressure you can put? Well, in my case, I can tell you, uh, and I think this is going to be very similar with a lot of people, especially athletes. Uh, the pressure I put on myself is always going to be bigger than what the public does, right? So what I expect of myself, it's always going to be a lot higher than what, what the public and journalists or anybody might expect from me. So uh, in that sense, I just got to worry about me, right? Uh, and that's what you can do in life and in sports, especially. 
And I can't be worrying about what other players are doing. I can only be focused on what I have to do at each moment of the day. And that's how I've seen it, right? Of course, we all want to win. Of course, everybody sees the talent that each individual has. And of course, a lot of us can't win, right? But you just got to worry about what you can do. And if you take care of yourself, you give yourself the best chance. You know, John, I know you're a real history buff on the game. I mean, you you know everything there is about golf, it seems like, you know. <laughs> I like it. Why do you think it's so important to know the history? I don't know. I like to be thankful of the people that have been there before me. You know, coming from Spain, before Seve, golf wasn't that big a deal, right? So I like to know who paved the ground before me and be thankful for what they've done. And at the same time, I probably should mention my dad was a history major. I've always liked history, right, myself, so... Like, you know, when you're as passionate as I am about golf, it's something I'm going to study. And I love seeing what they've done in the past. And clearly there have been some great examples of how people have excelled in the game of golf and how they've done what they've done, right? So you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. You just try to be the best player you can be. And I think you can learn a lot from those past players. Obviously, the game has changed. But, you know, by knowing what's happened in the past and what they've done in tournaments, even getting just little one quotes that you might get in an interview, you might get something that might help you be a better player, you know, especially before the game became so not technical, but so technologically advanced when you have all these machines and gadgets and things to help you out nowadays. Right. It's uh, I think when you hear, you know, Jack speak or Trevino or Ben Hogan, you might get a couple of things that they thought about that helped them in the process. And I think that's, it's also important to know where you came from, to know where you're going. It's, it's a combination of ideas. Now, this one was hard for me to believe, John, as I was doing my research on you, but I learned that you watch every instructional video that you can get your hands on. Is that true? Pretty much. I enjoy it. No offense to anybody out there. It's mainly players. Obviously, there's a lot of instructors out there that know what they're doing and a lot of them that, that don't know what they're, what they're saying, right? So I like to listen to players, and I think it's so interesting because – so many times, and I'm, you know, I, I, I do this as well. We are telling you what we think we're doing, what we feel we're doing, and it can be so far off the truth of what we're actually doing. It's so <laughs> funny. I've seen many things of many great guys that they tell you, you know, like Sebi used to say on, on this 50 year pitch, there's a famous one hour video and he's talking about this 50 year pitch and he says how, how he hits a high soft one is where he puts the ball up in his stands. It's fine. Opens the club face a little bit, yes. And then he says, oh, I take the club face straight outside. And then you see his hands and they go as far in as they can go. So I'm like, <laughs> he feels like the club head might be going outside. He's cupping his wrist, but his body is turning and his hands are going straight inside, right? So I'm just looking at it like what you feel, what you think you're doing, right? And many of them do the same thing. And I know I do it as well, right? I know I'm telling people what I feel like I'm doing. is not always exactly what I'm doing. So I find it intriguing. And like I said earlier, you, you might get a feel and an idea that they're doing that might help in some particular shot, right? I mean, I think you can always find somebody out there that's better than you at something. And if you want to keep improving yourself as a player, I think it's a good way to do it, right? It's kind of hard to talk to all of them, right? I can't go to all these players and, and, and ask them. Some, some of them might not give you anything and some of them might. But uh, with this golden age of media, it's very easy to, you know, to have access to so much. You know, I've talked to you a lot about golf and how you approach it, but you really seem to simplify the game. You know, as you think about it, you've simplified for you what matters most and you execute your process and you make it happen. What advice can you give to others on how to simplify 
what matters most in their vocation, using golf as an example. Golf can be, and a lot of sport, but golf is so intricate that it can be very relatable for people in the business world, right? There's so much going on. For me, in my case, is trying to know myself and technically know what I'm doing to where I can, like you said, simplify it to three or four little things that I can work on that would maintain a minimum level of consistency, right? Meaning I know my swing, I know my tendencies. So like a little checklist of things that I should do to, if I don't have a good day, at least maintain a certain level of my game to, you know, not shoot myself out of the tournament, basically, right? You're not always going to have your best stuff. You're not always going to be as sharp as you want to be, but that's what golf is, right? Just trying to shoot the lower score with what you have. And I think that's very important. Now, when you're knowing yourself, this is what I mean, is you got to know what kind of person you are, right? There's some players out there that we know of, like Bryson or Phil, that love to take in as much information as possible, and that helps them. Uh, in my case, I'm a very feel-oriented player, right? So I'm taking in the information, but I'm feeling it. I'm not saying it out loud. I might not mention it to my caddy, but I'm analyzing the atmosphere around me, and I feel the shot and visualize the shot I have to hit, right? But before and after the round, and I like to basically, like I said, just the simple things that you can control, that you can do, that I think you should excel at those, right? And that's right. I think where a lot of people can get lost. I mean, Jordan said it many, many times, Michael Jordan, you have to be fundamentally the best. You know, if you're the best at those fundamentals, then the rest usually takes care of itself. And in golf, it's simple. You know, alignment takes care of so many things. Ball position, just little things that you make sure you're doing properly that then would allow you to make your best golf swing. You've talked about gathering information and just the fact you like to learn from other players. And obviously, as you get that information, it, you know, you're, you're trying to build a competitive edge. Are you secret about the tips and the information that you gather? I know you've talked about uh, Justin Thomas, who wouldn't share with you anything that he might have learned from Tiger Woods. How about you? Or how open are you with others about what you've learned? I'm very open because, listen, I can tell you how to hit a fade like I do off the tee. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to do it right away, right? You know, Jimi Hendrix could tell you how to play the guitar. It doesn't mean that you're going to grab a guitar and do it right away, right? So not everybody's capable of getting to the same level at every part of the game. Tiger came pretty close to being the best at everything. But even there was people that were better than him in short game, better than him at driving, right, at different points. So I can tell you what I'm thinking. I can tell you what I'm doing. But you still need to put in the time and the work to get to that level, right? And that's not easy. So I'm not very secretive about what I'm doing ever. I'm pretty much an open book. Like I said earlier, what I think I might be doing could be very far from the truth <laughs> and, and the reality of what I'm actually doing. So uh, you might be asking me something and I don't know if I'm going to be hoping or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, they'll ask you something. You'll tell them you're doing something and they'll look at you and say, you're not doing it that way. <laughs> well, that, that's where, you know, knowledge of the game comes into play, right? Just understanding what's going on. And luckily I have Dave Phillips who, when I talk to him about things and little, little, little tricks that I've heard from players, he can always simplify it and help me if I understand it the wrong way, right? It's very simple. But it, it's just being able to apply it to yourself is not always the easiest, right? We don't all have the same body type. We don't all have the same movement or the same thought or the same feel. So it's trying to apply a tip that somebody gives you to your game is not always the easiest in itself. 
You know, someone who you mentioned was a big-time information gatherer is uh, Phil Mickelson, who is your mentor. Tell us about that relationship, how it started, and what you've learned from him. Well, it, it all started because of his brother. He was my head coach in college, and when I turned pro for the first few years, he was my manager. So, obviously, I gravitated towards him, and we spent a lot of practice rounds together. What I've learned about him is how much education he puts into it, even though he's still a field player. At the age of, you know, because I've been with him from 45 to now he's 51, the, the amount of time he still puts in, the amount of effort that you need to put into this game to be able to be your best, the micromanaging, how small of a detail he would go into on what he's working on, right? And that's a thing that I learned that is very, very important, right? Try to be as precise as you can in working on one thing instead of working on a bunch of general things, right? When he was working on something, it was extremely, extremely detailed, and, you know, laser focused on one thing. And, you know, that's what I think has obviously gotten him to be an amazing player. That focus and that determination in a very small little detail was uh, was very impressive. And uh, I find that common in a lot of different athletes, being really, really technical on one exact thing. Phil has gotten himself in a lot of trouble lately with his comments about the Saudi tour. And everyone basically has dropped Phil like a hot potato. Yet, You've gone public saying that he deserves a second chance and he will come back. And, you know, you could have laid low like everybody else. John, I mean, what made you come out and have his back? It's what friends do, I guess. And as a, as a European or not American, you always hear about the American dream and the land of opportunity. I don't think, uh, and this is depending on the mistake, I'm going to say this. I don't think a life's career and legacy should be defined by a mistake. So he said what he said, but he shouldn't be defined based on what he said later in his career on an off-the-record interview, right? Phil has done amazing things for the game of golf. Nobody's treated the fans better than Phil. And nobody's been uh, a better public guy since Arnold Palmer, really, for the game of golf. So he's done so much for all of us. And yes, obviously, Tiger's done an amazing thing for everybody, but you shouldn't just forget about Phil, right? <laughs> he's number two next to Tiger. So in, in the last 20 years. So I just don't think you should forget about somebody and just discredit somebody's career that quickly. I don't think it worked that way. And like I said in interviews, it needs to come from him, but I think he deserves a second chance and I think he'll be just fine. Now he can dig himself a bigger hole or he can get himself out of the hole, right? Bigger comebacks in life have been seen. So that's what drove me to say it. I just, I'm not going to jump ship and put a man when it's down just because uh, everybody else is doing it. But, you know, what he said wasn't right. Obviously, he knows that. I think everybody knows that. What he said was not right. And eventually, you know, he's going to have to make amends to that. Well, I admire that trait of yours to stand by somebody that is a friend of yours and that you believe in him. And you're, you're not at all afraid to speak your mind. I mean, you, you're one of the most outspoken pros on tour. You know, I think at the American Express tournament, you said it was like a putting contest that needed to be much more difficult. You know, this is a professional game. You tell it like it is. And when you say something like that, you create all kinds of controversy. But at the same time, you're speaking out as a leader on how the industry can be improved. Does that play into why you speak out? Or you just, are you just kind of, or just come to you? I was not playing good. I was frustrated. But I stand by what I said in that tournament. I mean, with how bad I played Tita Green, there is no way in hell I should have been anywhere near the top 10. I think I, think I finished 14 and I played terrible. I mean, that week was, was too easy in that sense. But I'm an honest person. I'm going to tell you what's in my mind. I'm always going to find a respectful way to, to say it, obviously, if it's in an interview setting. But 
I'm not ashamed of who I am and I'm not ashamed of the way I think. And I'll let you know my opinion. We're all entitled to ours. I won't be rude about it, obviously. And that video, right, there was two people around the green and there was one person who seemed to just be recording, uh, which is kind of what happens nowadays. I was going to the next tee and just trying to let go of, you know, of, what I, of the frustration of making a bogey. But if I'm asked, I'll be honest. Do you feel any additional responsibility being at the top of the game, really representing the industry and saying, you know, golf needs to do this or that, or, or are you just minding your own business? I'm pretty much minding my own business. I think just people care more about me, what I have to say. There was a big jump when I won the U.S. Open and I became number one in the world again and held it for a little while to where I reached the level of credibility that I didn't have before. But you don't have to be a major champion to know a lot about the game of golf. So that's kind of what I think happened, where I reached that point and people started asking me more about golf and listening to what I have to say a little bit more. <laughs> but uh, if you see all my interviews, they've always, they've always been the same. Obviously, one of the pivotal moments in your career was when you had to withdraw from the Memorial Tournament, the final round, due to covid when you had a six-shot lead, you just shot a 64, you come off the course, you're told you have COVID. And then you you had to manage what I think was a personal crisis, you know. I had to ask you, did you have a PR firm help you manage that? And Because, you know, you came out of this, and you had this tremendous statement that was absolutely handled brilliantly. And, you know, I was wondering, did John do that himself, or do you have some PR agency do it? So they tried. I hate being repetitive or robotic or like I feel like there's a formula for putting out a statement that'll get whatever you want accomplished right and just not sound genuine and personal and I hate that right so when we put out that first statement I can tell you my management team tried and you can ask them and uh, there'll be a lot of people that don't believe me but they sent me the script and I said you better scratch this and I'm gonna send you what I want to say Right. We'll go back and forth. They'll make it look pretty. Right. They'll make it sound or write it in a more educated way than the way I was saying it. But it was basically a conversation between me and the manager. And that's how we came up with things. I was never PR trained. And all the interviews, they told me they I still probably have the emails of what they wanted me to say. And I told them, you better stop sending me stuff like this. I'm going to be myself and I'm going to say the truth just in my own words. And I'll be OK. I have nothing to hide, basically. It's not like I'm on trial and I'm guilty. I'm going to tell my experience and the same with the first tweet we put out and the same thing in the interview. It was all me. And if anything, they just helped me write it in a more educated way than I would do it. Obviously, in my case, it would be very much like two bodies talking to each other. But everything was all me. And that's why I think people realized they could sense it. You know, they saw the real me instead of what they just see on the golf course, which is the competitor. I loved it because that's what everybody saw because I know you. I'm blessed enough to have you as a friend, and I know what kind of great human being you are. And I hated seeing you lose, I don't know how much money it was, you know, at the memorial. But I, I love the fact that you came out of it. You talked about gratitude, your family being safe. You just handled it so well with your statement and then at the U.S. Open. But people got to see who the real John Rahm is. Describe the real John Rahm at home versus on the course. <laughs> For people that, that don't believe it, I'm not angry all the time. I'm not this angry, unstable person they beg me to do on the media. I'm a very happy person. I'm a very decisive guy. And when I get to talking about certain things, I'm intense, but very much a family person and a friend to my friends. So you see me outside, I'm like, 
99.9% of the time, I'm smiling, I'm happy, I'm thankful to be where I'm at in life. You know, I have a wonderful wife, a wonderful life, and a wonderful son, and another one on the way. So I have zero complaints. On the golf course, I have many. Outside the golf course, none. So <laughs> uh, very different. And people need to understand this. When I step to that tee, I am competing. And even though it's golf, which is what people will say a game, there should be no difference between me playing that game MJ playing basketball, LeBron playing basketball, Mike Tyson in a fight, Muhammad Ali in a fight. We all get on that competitive mode. And the job is to win, period. However, you got to get it done, right? So, yeah, things get a little bit more intense and I get angry because I put a lot of time and effort into what I do and I don't like missing. But once I'm done, I'm done, right? I'm good. I get home and, and that's it. Like, like People would ever be able to talk to Kelly about things, right? How angry you might see me on 18 and how maybe 30 minutes later after I had a glass of water and a little snack, I'm like, it's a completely different mindset. I'm laughing, I'm joking around, I'm making fun of myself, which is one of my favorite things. Just <laughs> laughing at myself. It's, I think it's very healthy and I do it all the time because it's true. So you, you have to go in quarantine after the memorial. Two weeks later, you got the U.S. Open. What was your mindset going into that week? Luckily, I got my positives early, so I was able to go to California early. Otherwise, I would have had to fly on Tuesday afternoon. Um, honestly, what I've been saying is I almost felt like I had an excuse if I didn't perform. Right In the past, if I didn't play good, there was no excuse. In this case, if I played better, I was like, well, I'm getting over COVID. I didn't touch a club last week, blah, blah, blah. It's like I had a, I had a bailout. Right? So it's almost like that calmed me in a way. Right. I just went out to play and I was like, I'm going to try my best and, and do what I can do. And, and we're going to see what happens. And throughout the entire week, I had a, a calmness to me that I never experienced before. And it was very unique. I enjoyed the week a lot. It also helps that it was a tour of pines, right? A golf course that I know in and out as good as any golf course can be known. So that also helped the preparations. But I had a bailout. I had a cover story in case I didn't play good. So... <laughs> I still expected to win, but the pressure on myself wasn't there. Right? I felt like people were worried about other players. You know, you've talked about the U.S. Open and how you won it so many times, you know, the big putts you made on 17, 18. So I'm not going to have you go through all that. All I want you to do is give me a little scoop here. You know, what happened in that final round that you haven't told anyone else? I was in an incredible state of flow that day. I thought I played an amazing round of golf, right? I thought I played a flawless round of golf. And then I went back and saw it, and I'm like, man, I've hit even more bunkers this round than I ever have, right? So to understand how a score can be achieved, missing shots, right? I missed a shot on three. I missed a shot on four, a shot on five. And I'm not saying minimal misses. Those are bigger misses. On nine, I thought I was out of bounds, but it was immovable obstruction, right? So I got a free relief there. I hit it on the bunker on 11. I hit it on the bunker on 12. I hit it on the bunker on 13. I was like, Jesus, I missed a lot of shots. Right? <laughs> and I thought, I thought I was playing so good. I'm like, oh man, I'm playing the best round of my life. So I don't know if I was fooling myself. But the one thing I haven't spoken much about is that I got this from Jack Nicholas. I saw a video of Jack. See, this is where it comes into play. Him saying, it's a European tour thing where they ask players about their best wins, right? And he talks about his open win of Muirfield. When he says, one year, I forget the year, he says, okay, Jack, if you finish three, Four, four, like right? three, five, four, or something like that. You win the open, and Jack finished three, four, four, and won the open. Next time he was at Muirfield, he told himself again, "If you finish three, five, four, you win the open." I think he finished four, six, four, and lost by one. So on fourteen, when I missed 
my second birdie putt in the row that was very doable, I still won back. And I got a little bit of an edge to me there. And I told Adam, walking to the tee, to heck with this. Two threes, two fours, we win the tournament. Right? We had a par three, par two par fours, and a par five. So however it comes, two threes, two fours, we win the tournament. And that's what I had in mind. So that's what I went out to do, and I made four, three, three, four. And the rest is history, you know. And you became the first Spaniard to win the U.S. Open. Tell us about the reaction in, in Spain. What I can tell you is now when I do interviews with them and, and other people understand, I'm getting put on the level of Spanish athlete that I don't know if I deserve to be in there yet. And then they're comparing me to Nadal, to, to Carlos Sainz's father, the Raleigh driver, not the Formula One driver, to Paul Gasol, to many great athletes. And I'm like, listen, you're talking about arguably, depending who you ask, the greatest tennis player of all time, the best basketball player Spain has ever seen, and the best Raleigh driver of all time. You cannot be comparing me because I'm not even close. I mean, yes, I won a major. I guess I was the, the youngest since, since Ollie to do it. And I'm like, it's still very early. But I think the age of social media, right, makes everything in such magnitude that they're putting me up there. And when I go to Spain, it's a little different, right? Uh, over here in the U.S., um, I can go under the radar quite a bit unless I'm in a golf environment. When I go to Spain, it's a little bit harder because they do recognize me there. And I, I see the impact of what I've done when I'm playing there, right? They did tell me this, how the last few years, the people that have licensed, right? The people that have been playing golf has increased drastically, which whether it's me or not, it's a great thing for the game, right? So I can guess little bits of how I've affected the game and, and the country, but there's still a lot to do. As I understand it, I know your parents were at the U.S. Open last year. And after you won the tournament, I think the Spanish media flooded your parents' house trying to go for an interview. Oh, yeah. And they yeah. went to your neighbors. <laughs> Is that correct? I was. We were laughing. Because they didn't know my parents were there and they went to a neighborhood, just a private neighborhood. There's no gate, but it's private. And they were, yeah, they were coming in, knocking on the door, trying to interview the neighbors. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Yeah, Spanish media has no shame. Not that any media does, but they, I think they're in a different level in some cases. It was basically, I think a couple of the channels were like what would have been TNZ in the U.S. or Bravo, like a little bit more reality TV stuff. And they just showed up and tried. I don't know if they ever did, but they definitely tried <laughs> which is funny to me i mean that stuff is it's unheard of I mean, we come from a small town so the fact that they took the time to go all the way there trying to talk to my parents which they wouldn't have my dad would have said no but still <laughs> as i understand it as well you know at 13 years old you told your peers at school that you'd be so good at golf someday that you'll be telling people that you actually knew me <laughs> yeah that is uh that's one of those things that creates a chip on your shoulder remember the messenger app like before WhatsApp and all those things, it was in the computer, it's called Messenger. You just basically chat with your friends. And somewhere between seventh and ninth grade, okay, I was chatting with somebody. And at this point, it's still early. I wasn't nearly in the level I, you know, I got to be. Even at national level, I was good, but I wasn't outstanding, right? But I swear, I think I told myself I wanted to be the best in the world. Uh, I think I already told myself that. And we were just making fun of each other and joking around and, I think at one point I told him, yeah, you laugh now, but someday I'll be so good that you'll be able to tell the people around you that you knew me and you were in class with me. And this guy printed the entire conversation and showed it to the entire school. And some people made fun of me. Some people supported me. Uh, very few of them supported me. Most of them made fun of me for quite a while. And yeah, that has some effect on the man, honestly, on a boy at that time. So 
you know, not that I did it for that reasons, but, uh, you know, I clearly achieved the level of golf that I was trying to achieve. Yeah, well, they know you now, you know. And, you know, I was watching Golf Channel, and I was listening to Paul McGinley, the former Ryder Cup captain for Europe, and he said this about you. He said, the thing about John is he's full of ambition, just like Tiger Woods. Knowing how much you looked up to Tiger, you know, growing up, what's it like to be compared to him? It's an honor. Uh, unfortunately, when you put it into reality, what he had accomplished by 27 and what I have accomplished by 27 are two different worlds. But it's hard to compare yourself to him, right? I think it's a great idea to strive to be as great as he was, and he is. But it's, it's going to be difficult to accomplish, right? I mean, there's he was the first pioneer to think of a golf as a sport. And now there's so many of us that have grown up trying to do it the same way. That this just helped golf become you know, take golf to the next level. That's what you see every year, record breaking. It's like 34 under wins a tournament. 33 under is second place, right? I mean, all this 20, 25 unders, it's, it's not that the golf courses are always set up easier. Simply the players are becoming better and you need to do that to win tournaments. As simple as that. So when I get compared, even though it fits on that, which is true, I'm extremely ambitious, you know, my, my goals are high. Probably whatever accomplished, whatever accomplished. But I set myself, put myself a high standard in a bar trying to reach that's pretty high up there. Uh, I'll get there or not. I've said it before, but I'll try. And it's an honor to be compared to him in any way when he comes to golf. An honor. There's very few athletes in this world that could be compared to that level of dominance in any sport. Kelly Slater's up there, right? Uh, there's many others that are up there, but it's Michael Phelps. It, it is tough. It's tough to, to, to do what he did. It's absolutely insane. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with John Rahm in just a moment. If you're enjoying this conversation with John Rahm, I think you're going to really enjoy my interview with Jack Nicholas, where we talk about the importance of learning from not only failure, but also from success. I think you have to learn why you lose. You have to learn why you win. You have to learn how to do both. And I think business is exactly the same thing. You know, everybody makes mistakes as they're growing up and trying to learn and grow in business. And you should learn from those mistakes. But you also, when you do something well, you learn from that too. So go back and listen to my conversation with Jack Nicholas, episode 21, here on How Leaders Lead. Speaking of Tiger, in, in 2018 at the Ryder Cup, you beat him head-to-head -head in your match. What did that do to your confidence level? It's so late on the year that I didn't really think about it too much. I think I was happier to get my first Ryder Cup point. It didn't matter who I beat, right? But obviously being Tiger Woods, I think it just one is like a pretty big deal. It's a dream come true, right? I mean, you dream of things like that. Show down Sunday against somebody like that. And even though later in his career, he wasn't in his prime, I don't care. The name is the name. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna hype it up in my head as much as I can, you know? <laughs> I don't blame you, big guy. And it was something, it was so enjoyable. It was one of those things to where the Ryder Cup, where you play against Tiger or not, makes it, to where you get the core of why you play the game. It's so much fun. Win or look, particularly you want to win. It's so much fun to play the game that way too. We're not playing for money. We're not playing for just ourselves, but we, we're entertainers that week. And, you know, when you happen to get a big chance and win like that, and, and my celebration on 17 and having a picture of Tiger just looking down like this and the entire crowd going nuts, it's so much fun and so much joy. That I think if anything it did was, fuel my passion for the game even more. 
Tiger is an extreme great competitor. I got to see right up close what Tiger is when he made Eagle on nine and a birdie on 12, and he was doing the fist bumps and playing great golf. It was very unique. It was around on chairs forever. And what might have been his last Ryder Cup, you know, we hope not, but it might have been. Well, you're quickly becoming the leader of the Ryder Cup team for Europe, and I'm absolutely sure that you'll become captain one day. Someday. Yeah, someday you will. And when you think about that, what kind of captain would you be as the leader of the team? I think I'm going to learn a lot from the captains I'll have and the ones I have had. Uh, Right now, I don't know. I don't think I know nearly enough to to be able to do it. I think you need to surround yourself with the right people to help you out. But it's an extremely tough and stressful job, honestly. I mean, you got to manage 12 players that are individuals all year round. Make it come as a team and get the right partnerships and, and the vice captains to let you know what's going on and make the decisions. I don't know. I'd be probably very similar to Seve, very intense as a captain, because that's kind of how I am. <laughs> we might see an angrier European team, <laughs> but <laughs> anger is not the right word. It'd be intense, right? Just very focused. And- yeah, but once you're off the course, you'll start having fun immediately, right? You'll have that little glass of water and a snack and have fun. Well, no, that's exactly right. I mean, yeah, the, the meetings before and after, yeah, you can be a little intense. But meanwhile, that's why I think the Europeans do great is we relax right away. Right. Even when things go wrong or whatever, just right away you see somebody laughing, we crack jokes, we make fun of each other all day. It's freaking great. I mean, it's, it's, it will make it really fun. But to be honest, I don't know. I don't know what kind of captain I'll be. Right now, I can tell you 100%. I don't know if the team would want to have me as a captain because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would manage it very well. But uh, luckily, <laughs> that's what age and experience comes into play. So in, you know, 15, 20 to 25 years, maybe we'll get to see it. Do you think you're too opinionated about what needed to be done right now? Or why wouldn't no. you be able to manage it now? Well, no, each, each captain's going to do what they think. And, you know, unfortunately for Padre, we faced an insane American team. It would have been really hard to win that Ryder Cup any year with any team, right? I mean, they played incredible golf, so it's hard, right? My opinions don't matter because I've never experienced being a captain. That's where I can tell you I have no clue what should be done or what the ins and outs are that you do for those two years, right? So... It's tough, but I, I learned a, a few things from both from Padre and, and Thomas. Very different scenarios. One, we win by a margin. The other one, we lost by a massive margin, right? So it's two big different scenarios where I can talk to them and learn for hopefully my future captaincy. You know, shifting gears here a little bit, you know, one of the favorite interviews I've ever done on this podcast, John, is with the Olympian Scott Hamilton, the famous figure stater, who went undefeated for a number of years. He's a great, great winner. He talked about some of his physical limitations. He was five foot four, had a disease when he was really young, and it really led him to some of his greatest victories in the way how he really pursued his game. What's your view on navigating the limitations that you have physically and the challenges that people have come up in their life, you know, and still come out on the winning side? Well, I think a lot of it is my mindset, and Scott probably had it. I think maybe when you're young, you don't get it, but it becomes to a point where it's an opportunity to learn and become better. You got to listen physically to your body that tells you what the body can and cannot do, right? In my case, being born with a club foot, there's a lot of things right from the get-go that I couldn't do, right? My right leg is a different size and massively different mobility in my ankle. So I was very, very limited on what I could and couldn't do in certain aspects of life and especially in golf, right? So I think if you want to call it guidelines, it's almost like life 
and your body giving you guidelines on what you should and shouldn't do, or what you should be focusing on, or what you shouldn't be focusing on, right? I think it's uh, it's an opportunity to improve and become better. That's how I've always seen it. Obviously, as a kid, when you're young and you want to do certain things, you almost see it as a negative, where, man, I wish I could do this. I wish I could run faster or jump higher, right? This right leg is weak, this ankle, my mobility, this and that. But the older I got and the more I learned about what I do is... Thanks to that is the reason why my sequence is as good as it is. It's the reason why I drive the ball and my ball striking is as good as it is, right? So it kind of shaped me into the golfer that I am today. So it's something you can learn from. It's learning opportunities. This is just ways to improve yourself. You told me once that they ought to teach you how to be grateful in college. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you do see, a, I mean, I do see it a lot nowadays, right? Be thankful for what you have. Whatever, no matter where you are. There's always somebody out there that has less than, less than worse than you. Very simple. For anybody who's accomplished anything, or even if you have, even if you're in college right now, listen to this, or in high school, or whatever, wherever you are, start writing down a list of names of the people you're thankful for for helping you in life. You would be absolutely shocked how long that list gets. Right? When I did it the first time, I was like, if I keep going, I'm like, I wouldn't be where I'm at without all these people here. So, it's almost like, you know, reminding yourself. Kind of comes back to the history of the game, right? I got to be thankful for the people that paved the ground in front of us. I play golf because of Seve and the Ryder Cup in '97. I have to be thankful for that. It's like, oh, why I like to know what he did and what went through in that time, right? So it's a very powerful tool that is very forgotten nowadays. Thankful for where you're at. Thankful for the life you have and what you may have. You know, Father's Day weekend is coming up. What impact has being a father had on yourself, having Kepa? How's it impacted your golf and your life? Well, routines change a little bit. You have a lot more worries. <laughs> That's a, a few more. Responsibilities change, and I think priorities change, right? I mean, a lot of things that maybe I thought were important are completely irrelevant now. Kind of how it goes. Your thoughts are somewhere else. Uh, but mainly my routine has changed. So my mindset on the game hasn't, but I need to be more efficient with my time to be able to spend enough time with him and you know, still be there for him. So if anything, has made me better in a lot of ways. I saw your dad was at the Masters this year and he was at the U.S. Open last year. He seems to show up for you in the big moments. What's the most important lesson you think you've learned from your dad? So many. Uh, you think I'm decisive. Jesus, talk to him. <laughs> very few people manage stress better than my dad it's really impressive he has zero anxiety i hear him talking about the people all the time it's like you know something happens or it's like why are you worried why are you stressed it's like can you do anything about it no why are you worried about something that might happen in a month you have a whole month just don't worry about it. his way of managing stress is quite incredible but i think the biggest lesson he's always given me has shown me that he always said, no matter what you want to do in life, if you want to be the best, he always said, if you want to be the best at picking up trash or the best janitor or the best something in the world, you're going to need a lot of dedication, a lot of discipline, a lot of time, right? The best example I can give, and this is how he showed it to me. He's very much like me. I always try to lead by example or by do as I do, not as I say a lot of times. And so there was a, the Spanish under 16 championship in my home club. That was in 2009. And even though it's on my club, for a very long time, we would still practice and go out there, play golf, have fun. And then in the afternoons, he would rent a golf cart 
and we would go to every key hole. We'd go to part threes and I hit shots to every pin, to every win, every tee. Different, some holes that you can be more aggressive or less aggressive, right? And we spent a lot of time doing that, a lot of time practicing. So it should come to no surprise that I was the best prepared player out there and I ended up winning by nine. So I think he showed me how preparation is key for whatever you do, hard work in, in whatever you want to do. It was really, really impressive. He showed me without really telling me. We would fly to tournaments early in practice courses or, you know, every time we had a weekend off, he loved the game and being with me, right? So we would go drive to the course and practice it. But I think back on it, many of my wins, actually most of them, were in places we went early to practice and I saw and I spent some time and, you know, got more familiar and I was better prepared than everybody else out there. And that's why I'm not winning. You know, I've also had the pleasure and privilege, John, to get to know your wife, Kelly, and she's just an amazing person. And she travels with you to almost every tournament. Can you give us just a, a sense of what family life is like on tour? I can say Kelly is my biggest asset in the world. <laughs> she makes my life so much easier because uh, I think Nicholas said, a golfer's life can be quite selfish. can be. So many of the decisions that we make are made for us to become better golfers, that it takes somebody who's willing to accept that to go with the flow and, and help. Right? And even since college, she was always there. You know, if I needed to be somewhere, I remember when I was getting ready for a home event, you know, trying to get a, an edge on people and putting to, to the pin location we were going to have. She was dropping me off at the course at 5.30 in the morning many times so I could do what I was doing, helping me out with diet in college because, believe it or not, I'm way heavier in college pushing me to practice, pushing me to be better. I mean, she was also an athlete and gets it, but even to this day, she takes on home responsibilities to such an extent that like, I can just go and practice without a worry in this world, right? She's an, she's an incredible mom, incredibly supportive, and she gets it. And it's really, really funny to see her now as a mom. Like, whenever I ask her, hey, do you mind if I stay on the golf course? Right? A little bit longer. And the response is, if you're practicing, yes. Uh, if you're just messing around and having a drink, yeah, absolutely not. Right. <laughs> it's really funny. So like she'll go to the greatest extent for me for go practice. If I want to do this, do that, she'll help me. And she's incredible in that sense. Uh, now, obviously, if I'm doing something else, you might obviously be supportive. But when it comes to the game of golf in the career, it's, it's incredible. And, you know, she's part of the team and she takes care of things so I can just go out there and golf. It's really, really incredible. Right? It's uh, it was why I said. A lot of people ask me that and, oh, this and that. My like, gosh, oh, she's my biggest asset by far. Not my drive-in, nothing else. It's, it's Kelly. And now you have another son coming up later this summer. You know, just think, what are you going to do with the second U.S. Open trophy? Are you going to put one in each of your kids' bedrooms? Ah, <laughs> uh, no, I'll put them next to each other. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a saying in Spain, they say in Spanish is los, los bebés vienen con un pan de bajo brazo, which is babies come with a loaf of bread under their arm, meaning they come with a present, right? And Kepa came with the U.S. Open. <laughs> so the next one hopefully comes with another trophy as well. <laughs> that would be pretty, pretty, pretty incredible. But obviously, as long as they're healthy, we don't really care, right? But it's, uh, <laughs> right. hey, hopefully we get another present. Yeah, that would be awesome. Well, John, this has been so much fun. I want to have a little bit more with the lightning round of Q&A, okay? And then we'll wrap this up for you, okay? okay lightning, sorry. I'll, okay, I'll be decisive. Three words that best describe you. Okay, uh, humble, confident, and determined. If you could be one person for a day beside yourself, who would it be and why? 
I'm gonna keep it on the theme of golf and not get too far in Seve, just to know what the heck was going on in his hand when he was chipping. Just, it would be incredible <laughs> to know that. Uh, what's your biggest pet peeve? I'm gonna keep it on the realm of golf, okay? And I'm gonna say when people don't fix the ball marks with the greens, I absolutely hate it. <laughs> oh, uh, sorry, no, when, when people dress their animals with human clothes, I never understand it. <laughs> what do you do when it's time for you to shift gears change, change your energy away from golf and have some fun what do you do uh well if i don't have kip and kelly uh, i play xbox i play call of duty <laughs> that's great so i want you to imagine you're in the final round of a big tournament you're on the 18th hole it's a par four and you need a birdie to win but someone else has to hit the shots for you not you not john rom okay Who's hitting the drive? Well, it would help knowing the hole. All right, let's do it one that everybody knows, okay? The par five at Pebble. Oh, 18 at Pebble? Yeah, 18 at Pebble. And we need a birdie? We need a birdie, and who's gonna hit the drive? Oh, shoot, we're gonna have Ben Hogan put it right in the center of the fairway. Who's gonna hit the iron? Tiger. And who would hit the approach shot? You probably wouldn't need it, but who would hit the, who would get you up and down? Well, if we're going to have up and down, we're going to have take Sevy or Phil to, to chip it, and we're going to have Nicholas putting. I feel like it's pretty hard to beat right there. <laughs> yeah. What's one thing that only a Spaniard would know about Spain? Well, northern Spain is not warm and sunny like people think. It's rainy as hell all freaking day. No, it's not very pleasant. <laughs> Summer's great. It's like being in Portland or Seattle. It's not always good weather. Uh, but, I, I mean, it's so many, so diverse. That, that, that would be one of them. I, I come from Spain, but I didn't grow up in the sunny area. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us something about you that few people would know. God, I'm pretty much an open book. Well, does everyone know that you're a hoarder? Well, I was going to say that because our Kelly just came in. I'm the biggest <laughs> hoarder there is. I can't get rid of things to save my life. I, I need to hire people to do it. I'm so bad at it. I create an emotional attachment to anything for some reason. It's insane. I know I told you this once at the house and you were going to ask for that. This is so funny. Like if you go through my old golf bags and you look in the pocket, you'll find random things. I remember in my bag, in my old bag, I still have some crystals somebody gave me in LA and I can't get rid of it. I'm so weird that sense. I'm like, if somebody's taking the time to give it to me, I, I have a hard time getting rid of things, right? So they're still in my golf bag. I, they're in my possession still. Same with clothes and same with everything. I have such a hard time getting rid of things, even though if I don't use them, I just, I don't know, I'm gonna have a hard time doing it. <laughs> and here's one from your trainer, Jimmy. He said to ask you what your walkout song would be. Jimmy, he knows it'll be hard. It would be some type of hip hop song, but it's so hard to pick one. Uh, I actually, in the outing, they asked me this very question yesterday, and I couldn't give you one answer. I couldn't give you one song. There's so many that come to mind. It would be Kendrick Lamar, most likely. Kendrick does put me in the mindset that I like. And what would be one piece of advice you'd give to anyone who wants to improve as a leader? Uh, honestly, what I tell a lot of people they should do, that I do, that I also learned from Kobe, be curious and ask as many questions as you can. You can, like I said earlier, you can learn something from anybody. And little as maybe it could be helpful. And last question is, as you think about your son, Kappa, and and your son that will be born later this summer, what do you hope they learn from dad by watching the, the way you live and play golf? Oof. Okay. So many things. I think that it's important to be passionate. You know, try to find your passion in life. If you want to accomplish something, put your heart and soul into it. 
And, uh, but don't let it consume your life. It took me a while to understand, but you know, golf is in my life, right? Golf is parallel to my life, right? So don't let it consume you, right? Don't let it affect your life in the sense of if things in golf are going bad, you shouldn't get home and be in a bad mood all day. Okay, you can be worried, but you should still be happy. And I can say that the happier I've been outside the golf course, the better I've been on the golf course, right? So find your passion, but don't let it define your life, right? It's, I think, one of those things that it can happen to some people. You get consumed, but you want to achieve. You're so busy making a living that you forget to make a life. That's uh, something that I think is important. Be a good person, though. That's the main thing. Just be a good person. Be a good human being. Being a person that does know you, John, you are a great human being a great person and a really stand-up friend. And I appreciate you taking the time. I know, know you're getting ready for the U.S. Open. You got a lot of practice. And I want to wish you a happy Father's Day. I'll do it as well to you. And I'm going to be cheering you on to go low at the U.S. Open in every tournament because, uh, you know, I, I love rooting for you, pal. You're, you're something else. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. What I love about this podcast is you get the actual picture of what John is really like as a total person on and off the golf course. And the big lesson here from this episode is this. What if you started to use history as your teacher? Here's something simple you can apply to your business based on what you heard on this week's episode. Take time to study some of the greats in your industry. Who came before you and what did they do to win? Make note of one or two things they did really well and begin to apply that in your day-to-day. Because like John, you can start to use what you're learning as a competitive advantage. So do you wanna know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders use history as their guide. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be. Oh, and happy early Father's Day to the fathers out there. I'll see you next week.